FIRA USA 2022 will be the unique three-day event dedicated to autonomous agriculture and agricultural robotics solutions. Featuring one day of R&D, one day of farm business speakers, and an in-field demo day, FIRA USA will take place this fall, October 18th to 20th, 2022, in Fresno, California. Discover the latest innovations from manufacturers on robotic and autonomous solutions that can take your farm to the next level. Visit fira-agtech.com. That's fira, F-I-R-A hyphen A-G-T-E-C-H.com for more information and to register today. Spotlight. I'm Chrissy Wozniak. My guest today earned her bachelor's in agriculture news with emphasis in geography and economics, including an academic year at the University of Nottingham, England, and an exchange with St. Petersburg Agriculture Institute in Russia. She's been appointed by four governors to serve on the Illinois Governor's Rural Affairs Council and the Federal Communications Commission to serve on the Precision Agriculture Task Force. She uh, joined Illinois Agriwomen in 1995 and has served in many positions since then, including Illinois Affiliate Secretary and President, Government Issues, uh, Governmental Issues Chairman, Farm Bill Task Force Chairman, and Water Resources and Rural Development Chairman. From Fillmore, Illinois, I'd like to welcome President of American Agriwomen, Heather Hampton-Noddle. Welcome, Heather, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And now I'm tired just from listening to that intro that brought back to <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it's quite the resume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so let's first start with your background. You were born into a farm family, right? I was. I remember going about this time of year, uh, summertime, going to sleep and just seeing rows of beans from walking beans. <laughs> right. I was kind of, I was in the era where there were still weed hooks. I would actually pull them by hand because wow. it went through my shoe. You know, I was call me clumsy. Uh, and then, then came Roundup. And so then we went through a boom era where we would ride on a boom in front of a tractor. But I would literally see rows and rows of beans. And we also showed cattle, raised Angus cattle. So fixing fence. And we didn't have any sort of like blue healer or trained dog. So that's how I got better at running track was working with our livestock. Wow. And you still farm now too, right? Yes, we do. We are corn, soybeans, winter wheat, and we have some mangus cattle here and now in Montgomery County, Illinois, with our four children. Oh, that's great. And what led you to become involved with American Agriwomen? What led me there were a few members of Illinois Agriwomen. I had started out out of college working for a state association, and uh, just agriculture has always been in, in my blood, I guess you'd say. I would see these women at meetings and they said, you know, we'd like you to come to a meeting. We think you'd really like this. And I was hooked just from the beginning in terms of their openness to discussing and debate and trying to come up with solutions to issues and their willingness to get involved and pull in the same direction. So I've been part of it ever since. That's that's awesome. And And what's the purpose of the organization? Well, founded, uh, the purpose is to give women in agriculture an opportunity to further develop their voice and more effectively be heard. Oftentimes, there are a lot of us talking, especially now in social media. I think everybody's talking. But the idea of how do we be heard and have an impact and have influence, that's really at the core of the agri-women mission. 
And uh, a lot of people ask kind of why a women's organization, especially in this century. And, uh, you know, I've, I've gone through that period myself as well. But being also a mother of four children, I've recognized the benefit within AgriWomen is we can do things at our own schedule. I mean, the organization itself is, has just kind of a, a culture and a climate that allows women to perform multiple roles and yet still be effective and give you access. Whereas a lot of the other or general farm organizations and even commodity organizations, there is a really heavy time commitment being in meetings at different locations. Um, and we are able to work, I think, more like a clippership in the sense of uh, let's get in and, and be effective and get out and get on our way. So yeah. that, that's really a benefit. And that's really important to the women, like you said, that have so many roles every day and uh, and limited time too. Right. Yeah. I think I keep checking and there's still only 24 hours in the day. It's so silly. We could get so much more done if there were a few more (laughs) or more sleep. (laughs) And um, American Agri-Women holds uh, an annual fly-in to Washington, D.C. And why is that such an important part of the organization? Well, at, at our core is this kind of stand up and speak out type mentality. We want to be a voice for truth. So providing that opportunity for our members. And by the way, our members are also men, too. We have uh, it's not that we're closed off and you can only be female to join the organization. That We're probably the original gender neutral <laughs> organization in that sense. Right. Uh, I, I joke with them like I'm always like, come on, guys, let's go. <laughs> and it's not. It just is what it is. We're just people who want to get things done. But mm-hmm. our annual fly-in is that way to bring people into representative government and allow them that opportunity to not only schedule the legislative visits, but equip them with good information, policy, background. And the wonderful part that we're not commodity-specific or region or state-specific is that we learn so much from each other. I've been able to talk about forestry management issues, for example, with the White House Council on Environmental Quality, because of my um, conversations and direct personal engagement with women in timber from Idaho and Oregon and South Dakota over the years. So so we find that fly-in is such a great opportunity, not only to have the Hill visits, but we also have a really good regulatory lineup, in particular, usually with EPA and USDA, oftentimes also with Department of Interior to talk about land use issues. And we typically have an embassy visit, although this year we were not able to schedule that due to still the whole COVID era has been influencing a lot of the ability to book meetings and where we can go. Right. And, and, and how did it go overall this year? I thought exceptionally well, our chairman is Ruth Jensen. She's the president of Florida. Agri-women. Uh, actually living in Tennessee at the moment, but, uh, but Ruth just defied all odds and worked with agency officials to schedule with incredible in-person visits with EPA and also USDA. Uh, we also were able to host our symposium on energy in the USDA press room. And again, I, I think a lot of people have already adjusted to we have many more open doors right now, but the planning for this began a year ago. And even it was only the end of April that in Washington, D.C., 
you could start to get some more cabs and and rides. It was a completely different environment than what it's been prior to 2020. Yeah, for sure. And I was listening to Trent Luce's podcast a few weeks ago and one of your members, Kim Bremer, she was on, on the show and she was talking about flying. She mentioned that this one was different than years past because it was harder to walk freely, you know, around the Capitol and it was less friendly than, than she'd ever experienced before. So was that your experience as you said, the pandemic uh, has made a, a big impact, but also political division has really kind of left a scar on the nation's capital. So is there hope of recovery from all of this? I think there's hope as long as people continue to, I mean, average people, those of us who are out here, you know, feeding the livestock in the morning. Yeah. Or I was before I showered up and tried to look presentable. <laughs> um, as long as we continue to ask questions and request those meetings and show up. Yes, there's hope. But allowing people to, uh, those who are elected, to set the terms of engagement in terms of uh, how and when and if you can even show up, that is concerning. I've, so it's kind of, kind of embarrassing, but yet maybe it's, I'll just offer some experience here. I remember the pre 9-11 Capitol and Hill visits when you could still walk and drive freely between Longworth and Cannon buildings, you could walk from underground tunnels all the way from the house side underneath through the Capitol to the Senate side. So if the weather were bad or for whatever reason, and you could do that without a staff person accompanying you. Right. So I come from that. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And you could appreciate the congressional art contest. Oh, I missed that because now maybe if you're a staff person, you might get to see that in the tunnel. Um, but now this year, Kim, Kim is correct. We, we had several members. We actually had a member of Congress wanting to take members into the House gallery, and they were told they had to leave. Wow. So U.S. citizens not being able to stand in their own House of Representatives gallery, I think that is what several of our members there at the fly-in experienced, and that was off-putting to them. Um so, like I say, you know, I think there's a way to do it peacefully. There's a way to do it persuasively. But we have to continue to say, look, this is representative government and it works when people show up and continue to try to seek conversations about meaningful topics where we are being impacted and we need good policy that takes that into account. So, yes. uh, yeah, there are differences. I mean, now... House and Senate side, it was just more, but even getting Senate staff to understand how do you guide somebody in the building? Because there, there's just a different culture in those buildings. And you have to understand, you know, some of them aren't used to, I've got to walk down and meet you at the entrance. I'm usually making you wait for 10 to 20 minutes at my door. <laughs> so that, that really does uh, influence how the conversation can take place. Yeah, those are, those are really great points. And, and I'm glad that there's hope. I'm glad that you're, you're feeling hope and, you know, you're, your feet are on the ground there, and, and that's really encouraging. And and how do you know that you've had an impact with what, what you do there? Is there you know anything that's happened since June, or, or how do you know? Well, we know that that our voices, along with others in throughout agriculture and related industries, uh, one example in our supply and trade white paper that we have or um, talking points, 
we had identified the Ocean Reform Shipping Act as one measure to help alleviate or work toward alleviating some of the backlogs at ports. Uh, that passed, actually, then just within a week and a half, you know, in June, at least passed the House. So you're like, that, that gives you this sense of, yes, some people are listening because we know our members were talking to that point. Right. Uh, we also know that our organization has been among those that have brought up concerns about the SEC's climate disclosure rules for publicly traded companies. Uh, so what they're trying to require is environmental social governance and advanced reporting measures that could have potentially tremendous, it's almost, this is one of those, it's really hard to measure the impact down the supply chain in terms of the record keeping requirements and the potential for consolidation, further consolidation at the production level, just to ultimately meet some of those, those goals. Um, so we had, we've spoken out about that and it has really stirred up That's good. more and more voices. In yeah. That. And it's that issue is so dangerous. You know, the, a lot of the companies that I work with, they want to do something good for the world and they see that. And they think it's innocent, but it's not. And so really trying to get, get, you know, a voice for that alone is, is so important. Right. I think um, it's in the world we live in today, whenever, how much is a tweet? I forget how many characters are supposed to go into a tweet. Yep. 140, I think. <laughs> 140. Yeah. I mean, really let's, let's all of us just stop for a moment mm-hmm. and say, is that really the best way? that and emojis to shape our policy and our thinking because when we just what you said we think we're trying to do the right thing for the environment and we know at the farming level we are definitely trying to do that right thing because it translates to soil health it translates to better air quality for our families and our employees we're out we're living in this we are in it every day so but to put that into a tweet and, and want everybody to feel good about it, we, we've got to, we owe ourselves more than that. We can do better. Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to say with these, these types of disclosures is, you know, even corporate publicly traded corporations, we understand you have activist investors. We understand you have pressures against you. We understand you need to be showing this public facing commitment to the environment. But we can do that in more meaningful ways that don't have as much of an onerous impact on our ability to ultimately be self-sufficient. Um, and and we try to keep in mind, you know, really, we want to feed people first and clothe them and provide them with the, the products to build their houses and fuel their vehicles. And we can do that and we can do it well. But we as farmers need to be part of that discussion and not just uh, incorporated into somebody's SEC report. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. And and for these fly-ins, who, who is going? Who are the members? We had this year, we had to limit our numbers again because of some of these, it's basically COVID era restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, on gathering. So we, we capped it off. We had really good response rate and there were lots of people who couldn't get in, but, but our attendees are agri-women members from around the country. So we had at least, I think we had at least 15 states, maybe no, at least 15 states represented 
this round. Oftentimes it may be an affiliate president. It may be their legislative director or volunteer kind of issues action. We just have rank and file farmers who say, I know I need to be there. I'm a member of AgriWomen and I'm going to sign up for this uh, and have my voice heard. So it's, it really is that range. We have women in agribusiness. So one of my friends, she's an engineer, combine engineer with John Deere. And this year she wasn't able to make it, but she's one of our members as well. It, just, just that cross section. I mean, picture it. It's, it's you, right? It's, I want to be there. I want to hear what's going on firsthand. I want to be able to ask questions and ultimately have an impact by telling my story. Right. And, and the, Food supply it should be everyone's top priority. <laughs> we think so. It's been um, really the last three years. I think one of the best things that happened, thinking about a, a member of the Senate and one of the staff people there, she's just a lovely person. Have worked with her on telecom issues over time, like broadband, mm-hmm. uh, telecommunications. So think broadband for rural America. That's yeah. pretty key for me for 20 years. Um but the fact that she tried to grow her own tomato plant is one of the best things that's happened for U.S. agriculture. Yeah. Because she realized, even when she bought the plant, I don't think she even started it from a seed. You know, I can't remember. I need to ask her that. But the idea that it took months for the plant, even for her two months, just to get the plant to an adult stage, right? Maturity. And then when she had one tomato, <laughs> Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe seven tomatoes. And then she's realizing, wait, but I want to eat other things than just tomatoes. That in itself, the fact that more people realized we don't live in Star Trek yet where everything is 3D printed and I'm just going to simulate lasagna and boom, there it is. Yeah, well, that'd be great. <laughs> I don't know. But still, you have to have the inputs grown to be able to run that 3D. You still have to have basic inputs yeah. in there to be able to create that. That's um, it. So it was that's one, it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, 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 such a great point too. I'm a gardener and I always have been since I was a kid and um, back home in Canada, I could garden. I was so confident. I moved, moved down here to Florida. Oh my goodness. Different climate, different soil, different sunshine is different. Everything's different. And I killed so many plants and, and uh, it really, Help me stop to think, okay, wow, we have in North America, we have so many different climates, so many different places where things don't even want to grow right Right now in July and August, food doesn't want to grow here. (laughs) Well, and that's that's the irony. Okay. So sharing a story. All right. So Illinois agri-women, I think about the time I was president, I don't know, it's been, it's been a long journey, but we've up until the last few years, we've always had this Illinois Agricultural Legislative Roundtable. It's a wonderful, wonderful platform where at least two times a year we would get together. All the ag group, maybe 80 or so, were invited. We'd get together and talk about what are our priorities as Illinois agriculture? You know, what can we agree on? Where's our common ground? Okay, wonderful process. We've lost that in the last several years. However, one year, one of the members from the uh, either House or Senate state staff was there. And this was in my younger, I try to be more diplomatic now, but I just, I'm just going to share it. (laughs) I'd made a comment in front of the full group. I'm like, yeah, so now the state passes this. Well, every school district must purchase 
10% or some mandated amount of their foods from local sources. And I said, realistically, what does that look like in Illinois? Because school is in session from September 1 or mid-August, maybe, depends on the school district, basically September 1 to May 31. And all fresh fruits and vegetables are July and August in Illinois. Right. Like, what have we done? Yeah, we have beef and we have pork, but are we talking about soybean oil so they can fry stuff? You know, like, really, let's think about what we're doing. And uh, I share that because I, I came out pretty harsh because then one of the, the staff members was like, you know, I wrote that bill. <laughs> well, I guess we're talking. Well, let's talk. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk yeah. conversation about, I know you can have dairy products and we got a lot of dairy. That's great. But think it through. Yeah. And it's not, you know, a lot of people say, do something, do something. Well, yeah. no, that doesn't mean do anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. sit down and, and learn and educate and yeah, yeah for sure. And, and that all brings us to what's happening tomorrow. The American uh, AgriWomen is hosting the Global Food and Energy Conversation tomorrow. So tell me about that. I'm so pumped. So we uh, we have a lineup tomorrow for it, and anyone can register for it, not just AgriWomen members, where if you are really interested in what is happening, why are my grocery costs rising my restaurant costs are a different issue to labor, number one, right there. Okay. And labor is a huge increase in the minimum wage across the board for everybody. That's an inflation factor. I mean, we could talk about fiscal policy in another conversation. But tomorrow, people will have a chance to learn more about how global food flows really work. And, and I think it's really key. Again, going back to this, well, we need to source everything local or within a watershed. Well, think about what watershed you're in before you say that. Think about what what local area you have. Understand your climate, understand your soils, understand your capacity. Because if you still want a mango and a banana, you're not going to be able to live that way in very many places in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, or acai or whatever. You're just not. So tomorrow we're going to talk about global food flows. We have um, Roger Cryon. He's the chief economist with American Farm Bureau Federation. He'll talk to us on the food side to help people understand the context and data and everything. Then we have Rose Barbato, who works with Farm Journal Foundation, and she has worked on the ground in count. I can't even name all the countries, many of them in Africa, working to help manage food aid programs, as well as like Ebola response crisis. So medical. Her, she has such rich on the ground experience. And now her more recent work is in the policy arena, looking at how we can upgrade our agricultural research for food production and environmental benefits and how we can benefit people at home as well as in developing countries to help them be more self-sufficient, which ultimately leads to more peace. Mm-hmm. And then we, we top off the conversation hearing from Dean Foreman and Dean will, is the chief economist with the American Petroleum Institute and he's performed analysis basically oh, every continent on the globe. I mean, the man understands energy, not just oil, but energy. Wow. So I'm, I think it's going to be so powerful to give people direct access to hearing from the people who are in, in the data, mm-hmm. understand the systems, know the players, so to speak, from production through consumption and also understand policy. 
So I think it's just a really good opportunity for people to learn more and also ask questions. Right. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. And and like you said, with, with all of these issues that, were, that are happening right now, this market volatility, increasing food and input prices, food shortages here and also around the world, civil unrest, um, the supply chain, it's affecting the ability to produce and distribute food. So as the moderator of tomorrow's discussion, what questions are you, you going to be seeking answers and insight on? I don't want to give it all away. But- yeah. <laughs> Sneak peek. <laughs> <laughs> However, we we are going to address some questions that are near and dear to the hearts of ours in our farming and ranching community. Mm-hmm. Questions related to what role can renewable fuels play in helping alleviate this um, these these stressors that we have. Uh, what role can we play, even in our own families? How can we help mitigate some risk? What are some of the policy responses, short-term and long-term, that can have an impact for farmers and ranchers, but also for consumers? Right. We, this is predicated by the assumption, and maybe I should actually state this out loud, that the government cannot continue to write checks to feed people. Yeah. We must be able to increase our own capacity to feed ourselves. So that's kind of an underlying philosophy, if you will, because at some point those checks have to be paid for. There has to be money in the bank. And all we're going to see right now is just an increased tax burden on all the producers, not just of food and energy, but anybody who's producing anything um, to help pay those bills either now or 10 years from now. So, so some of the questions, they will be from that farm and ranch perspective. And then some of the questions will take more of a, a global view of, all right, so if we have a consumer from Boston who just happened to be interested in following North American ag and says, you know, I'm going to sign up for that food conversation and energy conversation. Hopefully, I think that person will be able to get some things out of this too to find out, okay, this is how I can engage. This is what I need to be asking my my representative or my senator to help with, to help alleviate stress on this system and to help people produce food. And and actually solve some problems, right? And uh, and so there is still time to register right up until. Yes, we are. I'd say get it in by midnight, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have that chance. Uh, we're really fortunate that uh, Ruth Hamilton, she's one of our members, and she is the founder of Annie's Project, which she'd be a great interview probably for you at some point if you haven't already. No, I haven't. So Annie's Project, Illinois AgriWomen, was kind of a project through them or sponsored by them originally. Mm-hmm. Ruth is from Illinois, but now it's almost nationwide. I don't know how many states they have Annie's Project in. But the effort behind that is to provide business education and commodity marketing and business development type learning opportunities for women at the farm and ranch level. And the, the learning mode is unique in terms of there's uh, there is classroom delivery, but there's also engagement among the learners. So Ruth is providing our technical backup and support and managing that registration list. So that's <laughs> just, you wonderful. Know, that's the gatekeeper. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And and who will there be a recording after if people can't make it? There will be available to those who register. So oh, even- okay. 
Like we have some members. I know well, I'm thinking of a member with National Cattle Women. She has another meeting happening in Nevada at that time. She's really trying to, with her schedule in flux, it's like, oh, I'm hoping I can step out and be part of the conversation. But by registering, she'll have access to the link and the materials afterward. Great. So everybody get registered as fast as you can. Yeah. And uh, so the, the national convention is in Bozeman, Montana, this November for American Agri-Women. And what's the focus of the convention? Well, the focus is determined each um, the focus. The goal is bring women together, provide that networking opportunity in a social environment, but we still get some business done too. Right. So they're still learning on issues and Montana AgriWomen as the host, they are setting that agenda. And I, I'm sorry, Chrissy, I've fallen down here that I can't give you that lineup of speakers because I know yeah, it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. I've read it, but to me, well, that's November. I will, in October, I would chapter and verse that for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there, but you can register now. You can see information on Montana AgriWomen's website as well and get there through AmericanAgriWomen.org and learn about that opportunity as well. Wonderful. And um, the we're going to go a little bit broader now with some questions. Um, the American AgriWomen website clearly states that it is nonpartisan. And in this political climate where it feels that agriculture and the farm family are under constant attack, how is it possible to maintain that nonpartisan stance? It can be very challenging at times. Um, I'm thinking not only now, but a not so distant era it was definitely almost an outright assault on rural communities in terms of dismantling energy production and what so many rural communities rely on for their tax base, for their employment base. Um, And beyond that, land use requirements, Endangered Species Act, tightening, ramping down what we can do with property and so on, just on and on and on. Education requirements and mandates, community banking, audits, increased in audits and procedures. I know in Illinois alone, just in the last 10 years, I've got to think of this time frame. I was talking with the CEO at one of our community banks uh, about three weeks ago. And I think, I think she told me it was closer to maybe 200 banks. There had been, I'm going to go conservative with this. And let's say even a hundred banks 10 years, 10 years ago. And now there are fewer than 15 community banks left standing in our state. Wow. Okay. And many of those have found that they had to go into an acquisition mode in order to survive. So they've expanded their footprint or opened up additional facilities. Many, a few of them are still within their footprint that they had 10 years ago. So it is hard. I mean, coming back to your question of how do you remain nonpartisan? Uh, we have some members who who don't, but as a national officer and as a national organization, we do. Mm-hmm. We definitely find that we have common ground, though, no matter what political party you are, you can find common ground and build bridges on specific issues. Right. So we look for that opportunity. I, I mentioned broadband is one. Mm-hmm. And that access to internet, that access to all it brings now in terms of not only information and entertainment, but healthcare, business decision making, mm-hmm. cloud-based manufacturing, cloud-based apps, 
that help fuel and um, provide that supportive tissue, if you will, that connects all of us. That is an issue where we have definitely found bipartisan support over time. And in fact, I mean, that, that's one issue where you can, we could say actually one party is much more favorable to those conversations right. than another over time. Again, I've been working that for 20 years. This isn't just a wake up call for me in the last three. Yeah. Um, for the benefit of, of our rural community. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you look for those opportunities to find the common ground you meet on that common ground and then try to have conversations about some other topics to try to try to, and some people use the verb educate, but at least make them aware, share that story of this is how this issue, you know, example, estate tax. Okay. This is how this impacts us. This is what it means in reality. Okay. The emission requirements and the requirement of death, diesel exhaust fluid. This is what it, this is what that translates to, at the farm level, and and we ask questions like, so is anybody now measuring since we've introduced that requirement? Can we really measure how much fewer emissions are going into the atmosphere since that's been introduced? Have we done any cost benefit on that lately? Right. <laughs> and I, and I ask that because I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. That'd be a good question to find out. Okay, we, we made the policy measure. You've had a lot of industry transition. Right now, it's becoming even more of an issue because of our, our supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. So are we really winning with that particular policy decision? So, yeah, being, being nonpartisan can really be challenging, especially when you feel like you're constantly threatened. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to get into a defensive position. But that's why we are trying, uh, actually, we've just had a board meeting recently where we are, we have a leadership team that has developed a leadership program where we've offered leadership things over time to our members, but we really want to dig deeper and then provide more broader benefit to our membership to develop leadership skills that allow us to be heard more effectively. To find your way into those conversations and realize that it's not just about us talking at somebody. It is a conversation. It's listening. It's learning. It's getting to a better outcome. And realizing that being defensive and coming out with the the fight or flight, I I kind of joke with my family. I I definitely, I don't think I have flight in me. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I haven't really experienced that. I might, I might duck or demur, but I, I haven't really experienced flight yet. Um, but instead of coming out with, you know, teeth bared and talons ready and claws ready, we, we need to approach things more from a standpoint of let's keep focused on what our desired outcome is. And if we can help move our minds beyond survival, I mean, yes, clearly it is survival, but what are some of the specific things? I think that helps us be better leaders. That helps us say, I can deal with this. I can kind of compartmentalize it in a way or or deal with things in in bite-sized chunks 
and we will make progress. But otherwise, um, it all comes back to that. If people want to become more partisan or more parochial, they want to rally around one tweet. Instead of realizing we are the, the sentient, complex thinking beings we are. Yeah. And we've got to tap into that to actually get better. Right. Yeah. And that's excellent advice just for us as individuals every day, just existing in this, all this division that we're experiencing. I, I, that's great advice. Just find something you agree on and open up the conversation. That's what I try to do every day here on North American Hague, right? So thank you for that chance to even say that. It's like, yeah, now I need to take what I just said. I'm going to watch the interview and I'm going to get yeah. it. Yeah, here. <laughs> that's what we've been trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, I've I've recently joined American Agri-Women, the Florida chapter, so I'm very happy. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of go through some of my my thought process. I've never joined an, a, a woman-only or, you know, woman-named organization before. So through my whole life, my career um, in agriculture, I've always worked in traditionally male-dominated field. But I've never felt that I couldn't do something just because I'm female. I, I can do anything. You know, my parents told me that and I believed them. Yeah. Um, and I understand that that the bigger problem is there's always jerks and they come in both sexes and not just from one side. Um, so I would never want to be given anything I don't deserve or didn't rightfully earn just because of anatomy. Right. So so yeah. that was a hurdle for me uh, for many years in, in stopping me from from joining. Uh, now I see what's what you guys are doing, especially this organization, and it, and it is very positive and it's you're actually getting some fruit from this. And um, so why is the the you touched on this before, but why is the organization based around women? Um, why, but it is open to everyone. Well, I um, it started in around 1974. I think we got the formal charter mm -hmm. and filed articles of incorporation. But it was, you know, women realizing that the structure of organizations at that time, it was, it was kind of, uh, kind of surreal, really, because in farming and in agriculture, in my mind, it's the original partnership type business, right? Right. It, it is really a, an equal partners. You're out there doing it together. Now, as we've become more specialized. Like, for example, we're, we're mainly a grain operation, although we do have some cattle. As we become more specialized, then our roles become more specialized. Mm -hmm. But at the time, in 1974, what had happened was, even though they're full partners at home, the organizational structures that took shape were, were male-dominated at the time and kind of relegated women to potlucks and consumer sampling in the grocery stores mm -hmm. type um, okay, so help with marketing the product, help with being that I cook it, here's how we do it type. And that, gosh, that extended even through the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. So what was happening though was these women were saying, and they had, again, equal partners with their husband. This is not a male bashing organization at all. It was just, we think we have something to offer in other arenas. Okay. In the policy arena, specifically drove a lot of them to say, I know that X organization is not 
going to allow a woman on their board. And that, I mean, that's ironic. One of our, our largest general farm organization in our state, I think they celebrated the first woman board member around 2010 wow. on the state board. And I'm thinking, why is that a headline? Mm-hmm. Because women have been out here doing this for yeah. decades. So that, I mean, I, I share what you said is so, it's so well put because I, I share that same mentality, especially as the mother of three boys. I have three boys and a daughter. So I am, I'm pro-human. Yes. <laughs> we can do this, and we can do this together, which is the American Agri Women like mottos. We can do this together. Yeah. Um, but I think it provided that, that opportunity to say, we want you to bring all of you. We want you to bring your skills. We aren't just relegating you to a corner saying you fit in this model and we're just going to plug you in right here. Right. Is go ahead and be you and bring it and let's, let's do this. <laughs> So that's, that's kind of the short version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it it is easy to forget as we're, you know, in these modern times where there's a lot, there aren't really the, the barriers to entry that our parents had for women. So it is really easy to forget that. And, uh, and, and I think it's, um, we kind of forget history. Right. And then I think at this time, it's actually important to to clarify that that we are a little bit different <laughs> we are different and it is important for us to to support each other you know in my move my my sister my my best friends are all back home and i don't have them now right so i do miss that that you know you can have a glass of wine with you know your husband but he is not going to sit there and listen to you <laughs> mull over all of the problems in your life he's just going to say well get over it do something <laughs> So we are different. And and I do, I think that that's important right now to recognize too. Yeah. And that's where, <laughs> so I say this just within American agri-women, I think that's why so many people, they keep coming back and yeah, you'll still have arguments. You still have, mm-hmm. you still have those things that happen among people and you have different personalities. And we, we try to work through that just like with families and good tight friends. It's like, I'm going to call you out on that. But hopefully we're still going to be able to get along at the end of the day. So why we, why I started laughing when you said about sharing the glass of wine. So as you come to some of the American Agri Women events, I'll try to point you to, okay, there's there's the group that just likes water and let's go do something. Give me a Diet Coke and I'm good to go. There's yeah. your chocolate martini group. There's your beer group, right? That's awesome. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just mill around. <laughs> I'll visit all of them. And then there's, and then we also have, you know, Sunday go to worship because that yeah. was another thing that was a founding principle and still is a very strong thread in our organization is just a deep spiritual belief. That's amazing. Yeah. That we're just, I mean, we can all do a lot. We have a lot to empower. We're very empowered, I guess you'd say, and we can do more to help each other. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not all that. <laughs> There's something bigger than us. Yeah. And and that's pretty cool. Uh, but we have members, although it was primarily a, a Christian organization when it was founded, we have members who are Hindu and Jewish, and we also have atheist members. But yet there's still this kind of... The, just a general agreement. We usually open every meeting with some sort of prayer or uh, blessing or seeking that. So, I, I mean, I share that. I know that's not for everybody, but it's really important. It's for us. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And what role does faith play in your life? Oh. 
Number one. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. And um, I'm also more interested. This is a this is a Heather question, not a American Agri Women question, but I'm really interested in your viewpoint on what's happening, you know, in the world today, considering your master's work in post-socialist privatization, your study of the Russian language, how did this form your values and what did you learn that could help North America in 2022 and beyond? Well, and that again, feels like a lifetime ago now. I can still speak mm-hmm. the Russian, but I couldn't wow. be fluent. I could get you through the get you through town and order off a menu and travel. Right. But, right. That's uh, important. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Wow. Let me, let me try to encapsulate that. How did that inform my view? What's clear to me, as you look at the country of Russia, its formation over time, it's long-term history, not just since Soviet, you know, Bolshevik revolution and Soviet occupation is it historically seems to have required a very Mm -hmm. strong dominant leader Mm -hmm. through the Vetch system and and also this kind of communal approach over time developed. So I don't want to call it group think, but, and I'm not a PhD in this. I'm just saying these are my own personal observations and kind of the, the cliff notes version that there's been acceptance of, you know, a very strong dominant point of view. Having been there for just a few months of my lifetime, people are absolutely amazing. I mean, wonderful people. And you can find that in so many places around the globe. I've been really fortunate and able to travel to, you know, almost three dozen countries, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, the people themselves, you know, have wonderful heart and creativity and, a, and like a, a spirituality that is is cool. But from an economics perspective and how this deference to kind of controlled decision making from a, a policy standpoint, whenever we saw the shift at, say, 1989 to 92, that Yeltsin, Gorbachev, Yeltsin era, there's never really been a significant shift in their civil law to allow ownership of property as we know it in the Western Hemisphere, and specifically in, in North America and specifically in the United States. They don't. So what you kind of saw was the collective farms mm-hmm. and their massive footprints just shifting into maybe a state-owned, still state-owned, but we're going to give a lease right. to maybe a corporation or maybe a group of farmers that formed in a cooperative. I mean, it's just a different type of decision-making and a different model. And so ownership means a lot in terms of how you maintain things, how you innovate and the long-term view of things like soil health as an example. Right. And I guess and then looking at this specific leader who has, you could see the signs. If, if you just followed some of Russia in the last 20 years, 23 years, Putin was only supposed to have, you know, X year term, but somehow managed to keep 
party control and keep getting elected and and people kind of mysteriously died or there were any any sort of rival just was erased from the map right called into question for their um you know, corruption or something like that mid the dev I mean, you can just there's a list mm-hmm. and there's a pattern that tells you the guy has an agenda right he seeks power he also has a deeply rooted belief system and a love of country so watch out right he's not going to take no for an answer and appeasement is just a sign of weakness that's my take on it yeah and but this comes from and look okay so in kvd or kgb he knows how to gather intelligence he knows how to get things done and um just really from a leadership model standpoint a very interesting case study yeah uh, but but the the scale i think what is a large concern to me personally is in the background china's got money to no end that we have given them yeah through our consumer purchases and our corporate investments and just we've given it to them we've helped enrich them um, but China's behind the scenes saying, okay, you guys go at it. We'll write some checks and be here to clean up when you're done. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So, yeah. uh, and the fact I, I'm deeply concerned by our national debt and the mm-hmm. structure of its ownership. And our members have been concerned for years about the possibility of, uh, we saw all these national parks and heritage areas being named. Okay, so what assets do we have at the end of the day? If you devalue your currency, Mm -hmm. how are you going to repay this stuff? And we have so many precious minerals and ores and energy locked up in national parks, in whatever they're called, biospheres and heritage areas and things. We're concerned. And, And that's not something you hear talked about in in the open, uh, yeah, you know, that's not mainstream conversation because I guess we were too concerned about having transgender restrooms for at least six years. That's all you saw on mass media. Yeah, that's it. And, and it, it needs to be part of the conversation now. You know, I, I'm to blame too. I was so focused on business, you know, before two years ago, um, but really paying attention to history and what's happening led me to leave my country. And from Canada, right? From Canada. Yeah. So, I think it's it we have to talk about it now. And so yeah, so that's why I'm very, very interested to hear your answer to that, especially given your history. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks for even asking. But like I said, I'm not I'm not a PhD and I'm not mm-hmm. reading up on this every day trying to be an expert in it. Yeah. I took your question just to be like you and I sitting across the table. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, this is this is what I think as of you know July 2022. Right. Uh, but we are I think that's a caveat to all of this is we are continually learning. But like you said, the irony right now that our federal government, I'm seeing more and more of this push to kind of denigrate or do away or revision, revise history mm-hmm. or focus just on the 20th century. It's like, whoa, no, now more than ever is the time when we need to be looking not just at the last 20 
in 100 years, but the last 3,000 years. Yeah. And really try to understand people <laughs> and what's driving us. And that's that's the benefit and the beauty of history. Mm-hmm. I find myself now, I'm reading a book, uh, Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans. And it's really an easy read, except that the type is so small. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I showed it to my teenager. I'm like, this is not just me, right? They chose a weird font. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I agree. Thank you so much. Um, so had the font been different, I probably would have blown through this book years ago. <laughs> yeah. Now I finally broke down. I'm like, yes, I will wear reading glasses while no one else is looking while I'm looking at this book. <laughs> um, but the idea is, you know, how do we learn more about these forces the combination of nature and extreme conditions and people and motivations. Is it power for power's sake? Was it energy? Was it food? What was it? Was it religion? But was it really religion or was it underemployment? You know, what drove right. decisions over time? And how do we not repeat that? Or how do we learn from the good ones? Yeah. Uh, it's so important. Yeah. For sure. So I have one last question for you. I'm keeping you all day, but <laughs> this is a great conversation. Yeah, <laughs> um, so why do you serve the egg industry? You do so much. You've done so much throughout your career. What's your greatest passion and why do you do it? Oh, gosh, I think a uh, combination of freedom and diversity mm-hmm. in the sense of this. We talk about property and ownership. And that ability to make decisions and to be able to say, I did that, you know, in a good way, not the gas pump sticker way. I had a hand in growing that and producing that. And you're like, wow, you know, that's incredible. Now it's, I was able to contribute, whether it's me or speaking from the standpoint of a software developer, who's like, I am trying to help develop software that helps us do artificial intelligence to identify weeds in a field. So we use less herbicides, mm-hmm. right? That's big. That's huge. So good on you. You know, we're solving global issues and we're doing it at so many levels every day. And that, that speaks to the diversity piece in terms of it is global. Everybody needs to eat. Most of us like to wear clothing, you know, in different degrees, depending where we're at. We like a house to live in. We like fuel for our vehicles, for our lights, for our computers, for the server farms. (laughs) We have a hand in helping make things happen and doing it well and doing it better, better than we did 10 years ago and 50 years ago. Uh, so that's cool too, to be part of a winning team. <laughs> that's great. Think about it. We are now producing just in the United States. I think we're producing three times as much, at least three times as much food and plus renewable fuels than we were 75 years ago on less land. That's amazing. It really, it, yeah. So yeah, it's great. And it's just, and we, uh, with the scientists and, and, uh, all these great things happening, it's like, we are making gains every day. And I think mm-hmm. that being able to, to share that good news to somebody who's maybe not in farming and they're just getting bad news thrown at them all the time. I love to be able to be that person be like, Whoa, Hey, you know, don't feel so guilty. <laughs> and there is hope and you can be part of it. <laughs> 
For sure. That's awesome. So where can people find you? Where can they find American Agriwomen? All right. So AmericanAgriWomen.org, the website, mm-hmm. probably the most direct point. We also have Facebook and the various like Instagram and Twitter. I think it's women, the number four ag. I apologize because I am not on social media very much at all. Yeah. <laughs> we also have a LinkedIn. I actually posted a couple of things on LinkedIn lately and I was like, wow. So that's how that's done. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you get back to your day, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's out there and we are out there in the, the social realm, but we're out here in the real world too. So come meet us, come be part of us. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So, and thank you so much for, for spending some time with me. This was a great, as I said, a great conversation and uh, thanks to everyone who's watching or listening. If you want to learn more, all the links are provided in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to North American Egg Spotlight on YouTube, Rumble, Telegram, or Eggfuse channels. And the podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Amazon, or wherever you listen to podcasts and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's Egg Spotlight episode, where we put the spotlight on people and companies doing great things for the agricultural industry. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, or on your favorite podcasting platform and give us a five-star review. You can also follow us on YouTube and Rumble to see the video version of Egg Spotlight. Also, head on over to NorthAmericanAg.com to subscribe to our Industry Connect update newsletter. If you're interested in advertising opportunities, email us at connect at NorthAmericanAg.com. Thanks for listening. Our newest podcast by North American Ag is called What Color Is Your Tractor? The stories behind the ag brands you love and the ag brands you love to hate. Hosted by me, Chrissy Wozniak. We take a deep dive into the companies that have built modern agriculture. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Go to whatcolorisyourtractor.com. Available on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Fastline Auctions, the ultimate destination for online farm equipment auctions. Looking to list equipment? Fastline Auctions knows farmers, and farmers have trusted Fastline for their equipment needs for over 45 years. With unmatched digital reach and direct-to-farmer catalogs, they can find the right buyer for your equipment. Not to mention, they have the industry's lowest commission rates. And if you're looking for equipment to buy... You can bid with confidence, no buyer premiums, no reserves, just integrity. Fastline Auctions, your trusted platform for hassle-free, cost-effective farm equipment auctions. Visit fastline.com for more information. You can join us for a tour of the Fastline Auctions platform July 13th at 6.30 p.m. To register for this webinar, go to northamericanag.com slash fastline hyphen webinar. That's northamericanag.com slash fastline hyphen webinar to register now.